Genesis 28, 10 through 17. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And when he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set, taking one of the stones from the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set upon the earth, and on top of it reached to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. It is good to see you. I am uh, just grateful for the opportunity to start our week in worship, grateful for the worship team that leads us week in and week out in worship. And I'm impressed. I'm always impressed by their ability to transition from a full worship band last week to a more acoustic worship set this week to kind of focus us in on God. Every week, they do a phenomenal job leading us in worship. Grateful for them. Grateful you're here. If you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to that passage we just read in Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. As you turn there, if you're joining us for the first time or the first time in quite some time, we are grateful that you are here. We are continuing a study that we started several weeks ago, exploring the attributes of God. Answering the question, who is God and what is it that sets God apart. Because the more we know God and the more we know about God, the more we can trust God with our life. I know I say this most weeks, but I'm convinced that most of us would follow God. Most of us want to follow God. We just need to know, can we trust God? Is he actually in control? Is he who he says he is? And can I trust that his way is better than our way? And the good news is that God makes himself known to us. Last several weeks, we've learned a lot about God already. We've learned that he is infinite and he is incomprehensible, that he is self-existent and self-sufficient and he is eternal, that he is good and that he is gracious. We learned some theological terms in the last few weeks that God is omniscient, that God knows everything, God sees everything, God sees everything. We saw that God is omnipotent. He is powerful, all-powerful. And today we're going to see that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere all the time. And we're going to see what that means and what that means for us in a few minutes. But I hope you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28, we're using the book of Genesis as a guide for our study because it's where we first meet God. It's where we first find out who he is and what it is that sets him apart. And as we follow along with the story of God in the book of Genesis, he's making himself known to us in some really incredible ways. 
And so if you're joining us for the first time, I want to recap very quickly. The book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible starts this way. God creates the world and everything in it. And it's good because God is good. And everything that comes from God is completely good. Adam and Eve, the first creation, uh, the first people created, choose not to trust God, and they turn away from God to their own way in sin. And so things spiral out of control as sin abounds. God floods the earth in Genesis chapter 6. He wipes the slate clean and starts over. But God's mandate for his people is the same, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth because God does not change. Then we meet a man named Abram, and in his grace, God chooses to bless Abram with a family through whom God would bless the world with his grace. And it's a long story, and we're going to kind of skip through, but Abram had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob. In fact, Isaac had two sons, twin boys named Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the younger of his two sons, and Jacob, from the beginning, was deceitful. He was a deceiver, and he's, and he's constantly swindling his brother, his older brother, out of his birthright and out of his blessing so that the promise to Abraham, his grandfather, would ultimately be fulfilled through him as prophesied. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. It says this, it says, Jacob, the grandson of Abram, left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Verse 11, it says that he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. Stop right there for just a second as we're introduced to the story. Here's like a pretty good example of what I look for when I read the Bible. It's just kind of an example of how I study the Bible. I look to see what the Bible says, and not just what it says, but like what it really says. Because the story tells us here that Jacob is on a journey from one place to another. But three times in one verse, we read about the place where Jacob is. It says, and he came to a certain place. He stayed there that night because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place. He put it under his head, and he laid it down in that place to sleep. Now that might seem insignificant and it's something that most of the time we would read, by, read right by, but when we see the same thing repeated three times in the same verse, it causes me to stop and wonder why is that there? Place, place, place. Jacob stopped in a certain place. He used what was available in that place and he went to sleep in that place. It shows me from the very beginning that as part of creation, we are confined to a single place. We are uh, confined to one particular place. He came to a place, he used what was in that place, and he laid down in that place to sleep. Now, here's what I mean. I don't know that I've ever felt more seen by a passage of Scripture. And I know Genesis chapter, what, 28 verse 11 is a weird place to say that. But do you ever wrestle with trying to be in more than one place at the same time? That's like an every week encounter for us. And the more that we add to our plate as a family, the more I feel this draw to try to be in multiple places at once. My wife and I both have a job. We have two daughters. One goes to school. One needs to eat every three hours still. You know, there's, there's extracurricular activities to be a part of. There's family functions to be a part of. There's church activities to be a part of. And at the start of every week, we lay out the places that we're expected to be and we try to figure out how are we gonna navigate moving from place to place 
in accomplishing everything. Who's going to be at gymnastics? Who's going to start the, the community group? When's the nanny going to be there? When am I going to be out of time? When are you going to be out of time? And it's just like this constant re uh, reminder that no matter how hard we try, we are always confined to one particular place at a time. And it feels kind of like an uh, incredibly unfun game of Twister. You remember like the kids game Twister? Like, I hate that game because I'm so not flexible. But when you're trying to, like, spin the wheel and move your body parts from one place to the next, and you think, I've only, like, how am I going to reach? How am I going to do before falling down? Like, sometimes that's what it feels like as we navigate our lack of ability to be in multiple places at the same time. But it doesn't stop us. It doesn't stop me from me trying to use the tools available at my, dispos at my uh, disposal to be in multiple places, tools like FaceTime and Zoom. We can be on a hunting trip and FaceTiming my daughters to do the bedtime story. You know, I'm trying to be in places at the same time, but I don't know about you. I've found that that never works well for me. Like the more my attention is divided, the left, less I am present in the place that I am. And at the end of the day, I feel just like Jacob, so exhausted that we'll grab a stone or something so uncomfortable and fall asleep in the place where we're ready to pass out. As the story starts, we see in the story of Jacob how we are confined to being in one place. Verse 12 says, And Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So Jacob had a dream. We've talked a lot about this dream in, in past studies, but before we dive into this, I just want to be careful with how we read this text in context. Because when we read words like this in the Bible, some people think that every dream is a divine revelation. Have you ever met someone like that? Maybe you are someone like that, you're just getting a little nervous. Sometimes a dream is just a dream. Right, like a couple days ago, I had a dream that my brother and I were both hunting and we shot a deer at the same time and I woke up really excited to find out I was just in bed. And I started thinking, why did I dream that? And I realized I went to bed that night before. We went looking for deer the night before. That's why. Sometimes you have a dream where like your, you know, your friend's head is a piece of pizza and there's two pepperonis as an eyeball. And you're like, why did I have that dream? Because you had bad pizza the night before, right? And so we don't want to over-spiritualize things because a lot of times, most of the time, a dream is just a dream. But sometimes there is something else. How do I know that? Because here, Jacob didn't just see angels ascending and descending from earth in some kind of weird uh, version of reality. He heard God speak to him through his dream. It says, verse 12, he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to the heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and ascending on it. Verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. I am the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and in you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This dream wasn't just a dream. This dream was a divine revelation from God that God is not far off, but God is at work in the world. And it, it starts kind of funny. He sees this, this ladder, this staircase going from heaven to earth and up and down the ladder go a series of angels. But what God was trying to show him is that he was not far off, that he was at work in the world, even more so that he was at work in the world on behalf of Jacob, that God was willing to come from heaven to earth to work in the place where Jacob was. 
God says, I am the God of your father. The way that I was at work in the story of Abraham, your grandfather, to bless the world through your family will be accomplished through you. Your, your place, your people will spread over the earth. And someday through your offspring, all of the earth will be blessed. That's good news because God is going to carry out the promise he made to Abraham with his family. Verse 15 says this, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. It will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This, I think, is one of the most incredible promises in the story of Scripture. That God, in his omnipresence, chooses to be with his people. So Jacob is on this journey, he's confined to a place, he's in this certain place, and he is settled in that place, and God appears, and in that vision, in that divine revelation, that conversation with God, God says to him, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. The God's promise to be with his people is one of the most incredible promises in all of Scripture. It is certainly the, the best blessing available to us. It's not what we can get from God or the things that God can give to us. It is God himself, his presence with his people. And it's not just an Old Testament promise. The Apostle Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. And to the church, the gathering of believers like you and I, he says, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, and then he quotes the Old Testament, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, God's purpose was to dwell with God's people. That God dwells with us, his presence is with us. And when we put our faith in him, his presence is within us. That we don't have to figure it out. It means that we don't have to figure out what our direction our life is going to go, but we can follow God wherever he goes because he goes before us. One of the things I've, I hear a lot, and uh, I think it's kind of funny, and if you've ever said it to me, no hard feelings, but sometimes people will say, Adam, I don't know if I'm talking to my friend or my pastor. I was like, well, I am both. Like, I am your friend, the pastor. And... It just rubs people the wrong way. And they're like, well, I just want to speak to you as, as my friend. It's like, well, I don't know what that means. Like, I'm not like some kind of direct line to God. There's not like a magical curtain that we're going to say. I, like, I don't know what you're trying to say. It's like, I just want to talk to my friend. Or I just want to talk to my, you know, my family. Or I just want to talk to whatever. I don't want to talk to the pastor. And what I realize, as I think sometimes people are saying, is like, I want to try to separate the God out of you. And I was like, I, the more I think about that, the more I think, like, that's not possible. Because God's presence is with his people, and it's inseparable. Hear what Paul writes to the church in Galatia. He says, I, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Like the old me, that's gone. Like I put that to death when I put my faith in Jesus. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. So when people are talking to you as a follower of Jesus, they're talking to the temple of the living God. It says, in, in, in the life I now live in the flesh, though my, it still looks like I just live a life in the flesh as this human body of bones, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
that like the work of the Holy Spirit to dwell in us is inseparable, that there's not two parts of you, there's not the flesh side of you and the spiritual side of you, but the Holy Spirit breathes new life into you when he takes up residence within you. And seriously, like, why would we want to separate it? This is the best news, the greatest gift, that we don't have to navigate life without God. We don't have to fumble or find our way through this life based on our own feeble efforts. I don't know why anyone would want to do life without God. And maybe it's just ignorance. And that's fair to admit, like, if you didn't know before today that you can do life with God, that God's presence dwells within you when you put your faith in him, I would invite you just to walk with God, spend time with him every day, put your faith in him and watch how the presence of his Holy Spirit holds you close to him so that you don't have to do life alone. God's promise to Jacob is the same promise repeated throughout scriptures that he would be with us, that we will be his people and he will be our God. Verse 16, Jacob wakes up. It says, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Now, I love this because we get to look back. We get to look back and know what Jacob didn't know. But we think like, of course the Lord is in that place. The Lord is in every place. But I just love the honesty of Jacob. He, he, he's kind of a swindler from the start. He's stolen his birthright from his brother. He's trying to run away to find a wife in a land where no one knows him and knows, no one knows his reputation. And in his grace, God finds him in a certain place and through experience, uh, Jacob recognizes the presence of God is with him. He wakes up and he says, surely, certainly the Lord is in this place. I just didn't know it. Communicates something to me that just because we don't know it doesn't mean it's not true. God is not limited by what we know about God. God is who God is regardless of how much we know about God. And God makes himself known to us through evidence through explanation in scripture and through experience. Jacob kind of gets all of it here. So what can we know about God? We can know that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time, fully present. And this is one of those things that really does cause us to either scratch our head or stand in awe of God. Because we can only think in terms of where we are present physically. We are bound by a physical body. Takes me back to the days of elementary school and middle school where teachers would be up front of the classroom taking attendance and they'd call out the name and you'd just call out present, right? Like, I am here. Growing up, I had a grandmother who was an attendance clerk in Orange County Public Schools and even though she never worked at the school that I was at, she could daily check the attendance record of her grandkids, all five of them. And I get a call randomly at the end of the day, Adam, you weren't at school today. I'm like, I know, Granny, because there was something better to do than go to school, and I convinced my mom I had a headache. So I stayed home and did that instead. But it was like this idea, like, I can't be at school and be where I want to be at the same time, or can't be where I'm supposed to be. And, you know, we can only be present where we are, but God is not bound by a physical body, and he's not bound by the physical realm that he created. God is spirit, and so God is everywhere, fully present, all the time. I'm going to be honest. I wrestled with this a lot over the course of the last couple weeks because in my mind, I always thought there are places that God is not like Tampa in the University of South Florida. Like there's just no evidence of God's grace in that place, is there? I'm just kidding. But in all seriousness, like in my mind, is God in hell? 
Like, I believe in heaven and I believe in hell, and I've always thought that hell meant we were just separated from God. And so I kind of struggled with it. And I realized that if God is omnipresent, if God is in all places all the time, that means God has to in some way be present in hell. And if God is not present in hell, then God is not omnipresent. And I wrestled with that. And so I leaned into Regan, our intern, and I asked her to do the research. And she did, because she told me that can't possibly be true. And so we wrestled with it. And it's really interesting. The book of Revelation says that the people who are in hell are experiencing the wrath of God. They are experiencing God's presence, but they're not experiencing his blessing. It's like this picture that he's turned his face away from them because they have rejected his grace, but his presence is still there. And they're getting the fullness of his wrath, while those who have put their faith in Jesus are getting the fullness of his presence and his blessing. And so often throughout scripture, what God is trying to do is invite people to walk closely with him. And when it says in scripture, I will be with you, he says, I will be present to bless you. That God's presence is always drawing us closer and closer to him. Most of the time when God says, I will be with you, he's talking about the blessing. But no matter where we go, God is fully present. God is omnipresent. Jacob experienced that, and then he said in verse 17, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And I love the way Jacob ends it. I think he could see into the future because our goal this series has been what? We want to stand in all of God so that it changes the way we live today. And Jacob just set us up perfectly. He has this experience with Jesus, or this experience with God, rather, and God's presence. And he says, how awesome is this? Like, how awesome is this place? But here's where Jacob missed it. He thought it was just that place. Like, the place where he was was the gateway to heaven, when what God was trying to do was show him that he is in all places. But it is awesome nonetheless. So as we think about the omnipresence of God, it certainly causes us to stand in all of God. He is set apart from his creation. We recognize that he is and can do what we are not and what we cannot do. But the question I have to ask is like, how does that change the way we live today? Like, how are we going to go home from here differently based on our understanding that God is all places, all the time, fully present? I'm going to tell you how I'm going home with it. I'm going to go home hyper aware of God's presence when I'm tempted to sin. What about you? Like when you're thinking, I'm going to do what I want to do instead of what God wants to do, in the back of my mind, it's going to be like, well, well God is there. And I think we're becoming, coming, we're becoming kind of aware of this because we live in a world where everything is on camera. You know, like where can you go today to escape the cameras? You go to the, the store, there's cameras there. You go to the restaurants, there's cameras there. You come to church in the middle school, there's camera here. Uh, I thought I had found a place a few weeks ago my grandparents were out of town and they were out of town for the week. They were in West Virginia. And so I needed some things that I thought I had stored in my grandpa's garage. And so he was out of town. I didn't think I'd need a call to ask. I went, I found the garage code. And about the time I hit the last digit, I got a phone call. And my grandfather, who's in like 99 years old, I'm just kidding, he's in his eighties, said, what you doing? And I was like, I'm opening his garage. I, I know he's in West Virginia. I was like, do I be truthful? Like, you know, just, just working. Why are you opening my garage? How do you know this? And I look, and there's a camera. So my 80-something-year-old grandfather installed a camera so he could see me as I'm just breaking into your house trying to steal some stuff. Don't worry about it. Um, no. But 
but it, it illustrates something to us, that God is everywhere and God sees everything. The prophet Jeremiah, all the way back in the Old Testament, said it this way. Uh, God through Jeremiah says, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? And he says this, he says, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I've uh, I've heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name saying I've dreamed, I've dreamed. What, what God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah is there is nowhere we can go that God is not already there. That he fills the heavens and the earth that he created. That God sees us as he sanctifies us and he sees us as we choose sin. If we zoom out and see the context from the passage we read earlier in 2 Corinthians where he says he's a dwelling place for God, hear what the apostle Paul says in the surrounding text. To the church, he said, for what part partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, false gods? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Or what, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore... How do we take it home and apply it? Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I'll be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And in this context, God is, Paul is saying about God that God is going to be, uh, a, we are a dwelling place for the presence of God. Therefore, go and live the set-apart, holy life that God has called us to live. It's why God is always calling us to exchange that which is common for that which is holy. And as we think about God's presence with his people that was accomplished through the person and the work of Jesus, it begs the question, why would we celebrate, even entertain the sin that Jesus died to set us free from, that the Holy Spirit is hard at work to sanctify us from? So how do we take it home? When we go to sin, we're hyper aware that God's presence is there, that we're going to choose to do what honors God instead of what builds us up in our eyes. So it leads us to a conviction of our sin. And then secondly, it leads us to a profound sense of confidence as we go through life knowing that God is with us. So when we recognize God's omnipresence, it's going to lead us to a, a, a very real conviction of our sin, that we wouldn't want to celebrate the things that Jesus died to set us free from, but it's going to give us a profound sense of confidence that as we live the life that God has called us to live, he is with us, and we do not have to live by our own strength. One of my favorite passages in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, God calls Joshua in the Old Testament to lead his people to inherit the promises of God. And as Joshua is about to take on that mantle of leadership and step into his calling, God says to him, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua, you are called to lead these people into the promised land, but you do not have to lead them in your own strength, for surely God is with you wherever you go. And I love stories like that in the Old Testament. And then I flash forward to the New Testament, I see the same promises made to you and to I as we go to lead people into the promises of God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said to his disciples, all authority 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Go therefore and make disciples, lead people to know me, to follow me, to look like me of all nations, everywhere you go, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. It instills in me a profound sense of confidence that God is at work as we pursue our calling. God is all places, all the time, fully present. He is present with his people. This is one of the greatest blessings we see bestowed upon the people of God in scripture. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to one last passage. It's in the New Testament, John chapter one. I want to end with this text. Jesus is just beginning his ministry in John chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 43. And he's calling disciples. And so it says, the next day, John 1, 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. I think it's interesting that follow me is always the invitation of Jesus. That God goes before us. That Jesus goes before us. That we don't have to figure it out on our own. But he is with us and he goes before us. Follow me. Verse 44, now Philip was, with, was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so Philip goes and he finds his buddy Nathanael and he says, we found the one that all these Old Testament prophecies are pointing to. He is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. I don't think Philip had an answer. He's like, I don't know. He's just blowing us away. We stand in awe of him. Come and see Jesus. Uh, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, because God is what? God is omniscient. God sees everything. God knows everything. Verse 49, God, Nathaniel said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That would blow us away too. But Jesus answered him in verse 50. Are you saying because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe in me? You're going to see far greater things than these. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, and hear what he says, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is Jesus referencing the story of Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to Jacob in that dream. That God's presence would be with his people and that all nations would be blessed through the presence of God, accomplished for us through the person of Jesus. And so as we study this text, what I want us to see is we don't study this text as if it's a textbook, that we learn something about God so we can walk away and say, oh, that's fascinating. But as we recognize God is omnipresent, his presence is with his people, we would accept the invitation to follow Jesus. And like Nathaniel making your way to Jesus, we're going to be impressed along the way, but we're probably going to show up to Jesus with more questions than we have answers. Sometimes sermons like this create more curiosity than, answer, than questions answered. If that's the case, I'd invite you to get into a community group and ask questions. 
But the call of Christ is always follow me. He sees us, he knows us, and he's powerful to save us. Father, we're so thankful for your grace. What a privilege it is this Lord's Day to celebrate who you are and all you've accomplished for us. We thank you for preserving the ancient story, the story of Jacob, where you opened his eyes to see that your presence was working with your people. But Father, we're thankful for the rest of the story that shows us you accomplished through Jesus what you promised to Jacob, that the Son of Man would come from heaven to earth so that we might, as sinful people, be saved from our sins, invited into the presence of God if we would accept the invitation to follow you. Father, we stand in awe of you. We're amazed at what it is that sets you apart. We realize you are distinct from us. You, you can do things we cannot do in your very nature. You are holy, you are set apart, you are perfect. But Father, we are drawn to you. So as we sing these songs, as we make much of you, we ask that you would, through your Holy Spirit, would make yourself known to us. And Father, that you would make us look more like you today than when we arrived. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.